Welcome to the Finding North podcast. I'm Chris Morris. This week is the season two finale of the podcast, and it will feature two historical fiction stories that were submitted to the Globe Soup Historical Fiction Contest. The first of these received an honourable mention. Please enjoy. The Great Fire Demon Japan, 1945. As World War II nears its end, the people of Japan suffer. Goku, a man who has seen more than his fair share of horrors, struggles to cope with the aftermath of one of the deadliest attacks in human history. By now, Goku had grown accustomed to finding burning corpses coming from around every corner, but it was nonetheless sickening, especially when they spoke to him. Today he had been running a simple errand. The unfamiliarity of the streets had been the beginning of his heart palpitations, a deep-rooted kind of anxiety that always felt more like a wicked demon squeezing at Goku's heart and lungs, trying to ruthlessly knead every last bit of air out of him. He had walked without breath for more steps than he'd have cared to count before turning the corner and seeing them. The fire demons. They limped towards Goku with certainty and demanding hunger. Their faces were the same as always, concealed by the flames that enveloped them. But in Goku's mind, the expressions behind those flames must have been a horrifying mix of anguish and an unrelenting desire to lay hands on him. The parts of their body that Goku could see were blackened and peeling. The scent of their melting and burning skin made his throat tighten and his stomach wilt. Help us! One of them cried. It was impossible to tell the gender of the person, but Goku thought it didn't matter. Whatever features had once made this person any form of human had long ago died and was replaced with this horrifying creature sent to the living world by Akuma, the fire demon. From behind him, he felt two scorching hands grasp onto his shoulders. The flames seared into his flesh, and his legs gave way from under him. Kneeling down, he could only gaze upwards and hope that these people, these things, would go about their business quickly, so that he could escape this nightmare. But time seemed to slow, as one by one the fiery bodies came to him, placed hands upon him and let the flames that played them become one with Goku. Making out some of their faces now, he observed that many of their eyes were completely missing, as though they'd been the first things to melt upon contact with whatever state of affairs had caused them their suffering. Help us! Help us! And now the sky lit up in a light so bright that Goku could only see it for a moment before he lost his vision. As he felt his body become overwhelmed by the flames, he could only scream and continue to hope in vain for some sort of mercy. Your brother said they found you lying in the street, screaming. He heard his father's words, only distantly, as though they had been spoken from the next room, as not the one they shared. They reverberated in Goku's minds like tiny ghosts whispering in an unfamiliar language. 
Moments before, he had been terrorised by demons. Now he was haunted by the emptiness of the world around him, a world that had inexorably and profoundly changed. There is no need to scream anymore, his father said. The plight is over. You're safe here. Goku heard these words, but did not listen to them. His gaze had been fixed on his father's purple iris at the window. A wondrous thing. It sat there by the window as though today was merely some ordinary happy day. As though beyond the window lay a world at peace. How peculiar that something so still and tranquil could exist at all anymore in a place so enveloped by horror. You must not show such weakness, Goku's father continued. Still, the words barely sounded like language at all. You will bring shame upon the family, upon me. The air around him was coated with misery. Beyond the walls of the house, the streets were weeping undignified tears of blood. Yet here, the iris stood against it all, in spite of the suffering. Bad enough that our country has surrendered. If you can no longer hold any honour in being Japanese, then at least try to keep some in being my son. It was beautiful, actually. The flower. And even if it had been the last piece of beauty left on this earth, it was still something to be celebrated. More than this, it was extraordinary. It was... Goku's thoughts were disturbed when the iris suddenly toppled and fell to the floor underneath a copy of Soseki Natumi's I Am A Cat. Goku's head snapped towards his father, who was irate. Are you even listening to me, boy? What's in the name of... But his father's words now were more than just unrecognisable. They were insignificant. For the thing that occupies Goku's mind now was his father's face. It was red, as red as the rising sun. And it was getting bigger. As his father continued to shout words that Goku could not hear, his head expanded and ignited. It was his eyes that caught fire first, melting in their sockets and dripping to the floor in a pool of filth. As the head enlarged even more, the sockets where the eyes had been became two giant and dark but fiery valleys that would soon become large enough to swallow Goku whole. Before Goku could react, his father's head suddenly exploded, a mushroom cloud of blood rising to the ceiling, staining it, the walls, and everything in sight red. But still his father stood, and now, in his head's place, came the face of another. A woman, Goku thought, but it was difficult to tell. Her face had blackened and scarred, and, like his father, her eyes had melted away. Goku! Why don't you help me? Why? Not for the first time, nor, Goku suspected, the last... He fled in terror, screaming as he went. He had suddenly become both deaf and blind. That's what he told his brother now as he sat with him. Kazumi had always been a good listener, and an older brother whom Goku could rely on. At first, I did not realise there had been an explosion, Goku said. Darkness shrouded my vision, and I could hear nothing but a distant ringing. He did not look at the face of Kazumi, not since their fathers had exploded. Instead, he had kept his narrow eyes fixed on the path directly in front of him as he searched for things like his father's iris, things of peace and beauty, but he had found none. 
a garden that had suffered from much loss after the American firebombing raids, was where he had regained some of his composure, and somehow, Kazumi had been able to find him. He always seemed to know where Goku might be, even if Goku had not known himself. When my vision finally returns, I saw a great cloud above the city. Underneath it was nothing but death. Desolation. It was a force unlike anything I'd ever imagined. It is safe now, Goku, Kazumi said. You escaped. You are alive and well. You are fortunate. But Goku did not feel fortunate. In many ways, he felt as though it might have been better had he been closer to the blast, somewhere in the middle of it. The people who had died there might not have even known that anything had happened at all. They might have been going about their day at one moment, and then at the next, they disappeared, like switching off a light. But the ones who were just a little further away, they took longer to die. They watched through bleeding eyes as the gargantuan black cloud rose to the sky, the American plane whizzing away from it as those within laughed, proud of their work, proud of the slaughter of children. They saw the city disappear in a fire that was mightier than that of the most savage volcano. And when they caught fire themselves, the horror they must have felt, the desperate panic. Most of those people died, and sometimes Goku thought that was their fortune. For who could carry on with a normal life afterwards? But in the area where Goku had stood, most people had survived, and had felt like a curse. Goku had at first stumbled around in fear, blinded by the brightness of the light of a thousand suns that had flashed just before the explosion. But when his vision returned, he had been forced to watch the people who had become cocooned in flames. He watched them run down the streets in anguish and terror, desperate to find some way of extinguishing the fire. He had been so transfixed by the scene that he had forgotten to breathe, or to check that he even still could. And then he had panicked. Breathing in the fumes from this evil new weapon might have been just as deadly as becoming entrapped in its flames. It was as though the entire world he'd come to know had all at once vanished and was replaced in every direction with the worst kind of horror. A woman whose hair had burned completely away knelt not far from Goku and screamed into the sky as she wept tears of blood. In her arms, she held a baby. Goku did not know whether the woman was aware that the baby was on fire. A man rushed into a half-collapsed building, shouting the names of what Goku could only assume were his own children. His face and arms were badly burned. A charred mess of a body lay on the floor ahead of him, the left arm twitching. It would be merciful if Goku could be brave enough to help this thing that had used to be a human die. But he could not. He could only stand there, under the shadow of the cloud of fury, and watch the chaos of a dismantling world he used to know as it turned to ash. And he saw within that furious cloud the laughing, mocking face of the most fierce and unforgiving fire demon. It is over, Kazumi said. The whole war is over. We have surrendered. For the first time, Goku felt a small urge to look at his brother. The war was over. It was what his father had claimed too, but it made no sense to Goku. 
The Japanese people did not surrender. The Americans knew that they would fight to the last man, woman, and child. Here, Kazumi said. He handed Goku a newspaper. The headlines were full of dismay. The war was going badly. The Americans would soon defeat Japan. But of course, the main story concerned the devastation caused by the incredible power of the new weapon. Thousands die in devastating new attack by the US. What will the Soviet Union do? How many bombs will it take to convince Emperor Hirohito to surrender? There is no official word on a surrender, Goku said. You talk only of rumours. Goku could feel his brother's eyes on him. When Kazumi spoke, Goku felt the weight of every word. If you were the emperor, what would you do? Goku nodded. Whether or not this was the truth, the very fact that his brother remained hopeful was a thing too rare and wondrous in these grim days to ignore. Come on, Kazumi said. Let's get you back to father's house. You should try to eat something. With a sigh, Goku threw the newspaper to the side and followed his brother back towards central Nagasaki. The date on the newspaper read 9th of August, 1945. Their father was quiet. He made no mention of the earlier incident, but would speak no words to Goku, communicating only with Kazumi. A heavy ball found itself resting in Goku's stomach, as though something around him wasn't right, as though perhaps the great fire demon from his memory and nightmares had reared its head once more. The house became still. The soundless dread filled the air like a poisonous gas with plans of destruction. Goku felt sick now, sick from the fear, the misery, the sorrow, and the dreadful feeling that something more was to come. More fiery undead? No, that wasn't it. It was a drone, a distant drone from outside that sounded very much to Goku like, A plane! An American plane! The panic-stricken voice bellowed from somewhere near the house, Goku heard it from the open window. Kazumi raced to the door, and Goku followed. They looked up to the sky. Yes, an American plane, with strange red lights flashing at its belly. The doors opened. Something dropped. It would land not even a mile from where they stood. Father! Kazumi shouted, and he ran back into the house. But Goku did not. Goku stood at the doorway and watched the thing fall from the sky. If he could, he would at once cry and laugh. He would cry bloody tears of horror and anguish at the thought of what was about to happen to him, to his brother, his father, his city, his people. And he would laugh because he was fortunate, fortunate to not have to live with what happened next. This time he did not lose his vision. He saw every twisted detail. He remained standing at the doorway while the heat of the inside of a sun engulfed him, while he watched a mushroom cloud rise up to the heavens, while his body caught fire. If anything could have been left of his skeleton, he thought they might find his skull still grinning.
but his last thought before succumbing to the pain and the fire turns now to the children of the city. Will their deaths be worth the end of the war? And he thought, yes, yes they will. For what kind of fool would believe this wicked new world to be a suitable place for children? Blood Red Sun Ancient Egypt In a world surrounded by many dangers, Athos blames himself for failing to protect the one person he should have been there for. In Crocodilopolis, he seeks salvation. The worst nightmares often come from the most harrowing recounts of a true event. Athos dreamed his every night. Dusk. He and Alexander were playing outside the city again. They were told not to, of course, but more fun was to be had in disobeying rules. After all, would Athos the Almighty be stopped by his mother's constant scalding? Would Alexander the Audacious? But as is the case with many bad dreams, Athos was forced to live through these scenes as a horrified witness, unable to intervene and stop Alexander before it was too late. Embodying the Athos of old, he trudged through the swampy outskirts of Memphis, giggling as his brother slung dirt in his direction and yearning to cry out to him to turn back to the safety of the city. As the sun reddened and continued to set, his heavy legs lumbered onwards, while the inner, powerless Athos tried with every fibre of his soul to stop. Come on, Athos, Alexander cried. If you can catch me, I'll give you my slice of melon tonight. No, Athos. This time it will be different. Turn from Alexander. Lead him back to the city. But Athos's legs continued to drive him onwards. His mouth continued to painfully smile. Discordant laughter escaped him, touched his little brother and bounced back towards him with a mocking jeer that promised Athos he could not escape this nightmare that it would return to him again and again and again, and he must live with it. Through the blanket of darkness ahead, Athos watched his brother trip and disappear down the hill ahead of him. He heard a splash as Alexander landed in the shallow water below. Alexander! Athos's memory served him well. In reality, it was almost fully dark when Alexander disappeared, and it had been difficult to see him. But in the nightmare... The setting sun always melted at this point. Its red colour bled out into the sky and decorated the scene with a scarlet tint just bright enough that Athos can see his little brother sitting in the shallow end of a large pool of muddy water. Pain was etched on his face. My leg, Athos! I've hurt my leg! In reality, Athos mercifully could not make out much of what happened next. But in his nightmare... He was forced to watch on through eyes that were cursed by Medusa to see every detail. Two great white orbs appeared from behind his brother and slowly approached 
while Athos carefully climbs down the small hill. Don't worry, brother, Athos said with a grin that he could not force from his face. We'll have to tell mother that Zeus formed a rain cloud above your heads to explain why you're so drenched. This was always the worst part of the nightmare. What followed was torturous, but an argument could be made that remembering the very last piece of something normal shared with the person you had loved and lost was a special kind of curse reserved for people like Athos, those who had someone to protect, and failed them miserably. The great orbs enlarged, and before them a gargantuan, virescent mouth escaped the water and rushed towards Alexander. Before Athos could move, before his own eyes could widen, before he could even draw in breath with which to cry out to his little brother, the jaws of a monstrous crocodile closed around Alexander's injured leg. He screamed in horror and agony as he was dragged inexorably towards the deeper part of the water. As he watched, Athos first froze in terror, and then, seeing the look in his brother's eyes, and taking no time to think rationally, he sprung forwards, picking up the strongest weapon he could find along the way, a thick branch fallen from a nearby tree. He reached the beast moments before it would have disappeared into the depths, and brought the branch as forcefully as he could to its eye. Expecting no result from this, Athos was shocked when the crocodile's head flinched. It loosened its grip. And here, whatever hideous realm was responsible for the design of nightmares, took control once more. It laughed. The hideous creature actually laughed. It held on to Alexander now by a single tooth. The branch which had struck its eye now floated in two halves in the water, drifting away from the scene as though they wanted no further part in it. That's when he arrived, in the sky. He had the body of a man, and wore nothing but what looked like a reptile skin kilt. In his right hand he held a large black staff, and his head was that of a crocodile's, its ominous grin showing off the many pointed mountains of teeth within. Sobek the Egyptian's crocodile god. Your brother is doomed, Sobek thundered. You have failed him. No, Athos yelled, as always. You leave him, you leave my brother alone. But Sobek's grin would always simply widen. Turning from Athos, he fixed his attention on the crocodile, still grasping on to Alexander by that one single tooth. Come, my child, Sobek said, and turned away. Before Athos could protest, the beast's jaws opened wider than before and swallowed Alexander whole. Athos's dry eyelids squeezed together as he wiped away grains of sand with his sweaty palm. The sun was not yet at its highest, so he would have to move quickly if he wanted to avoid stumbling around the ground surrounding the oasis at the most blisteringly hot part of the day. One more wipe of the face, and a swift but liberal swig of water, and he forced his aching legs onwards. As he walked, he whispered, words that had echoed around his mind since the day he had decided he would come to this place, his promise to himself. Blood for blood, life for death. Blood for blood, life for death. His mother must have noticed by now that he was gone, even after many weeks of saturating her eyes with overwhelming grief, barely paying any attention to the world as it rolled by. 
He had no tears that run down the face of Athos. He was instead consumed by something else. A furious fire had been lit in his stomach, and he hungered for the blood of the one responsible for the death of Alexander. In the days following the incident, he'd even returned to the outskirts of the city to search for the beast that had taken him, armed with his mother's best knife. But each time he found nothing but swampy ground and a few frogs, the fires within him flamed ever more, and his anger multiplied. Anger at the crocodile, at its god, and at himself. How could you not have saved your little brother? At the top of the dune, he stopped and gazed at it. A magnificent and yet intimidating sight. Its golden walls gleamed against the dazzling sun, but when Athos's eyes adjusted, he knew he had arrived. The Egyptians called it Fayum, but Athos's people had another name. Crocodilopolis, the city of crocodiles. If Sobek refused to bring his little brother back to life, Athos would return to Memphis with the god's head on a spike. Blood for blood, life for death. Crocodilopolis bustled. In Memphis, Athos was used to busy marketplaces, but here the people seemed much greater in number and less patient with a foreign boy who had happened to walk in their way. More than once he was swept to the side by a strong and uncaring hand, only to find himself at the mercy of another a few steps later. He'd foolishly thought it might be easy to find the whereabouts of the temple he'd heard about, the temple where that awful crocodile god was said to be worshipped. He'd assumed a great number of crocodile statues would point the way, that he'd reach it before the sun had begun its slow descent downwards, but roaming the streets of the city now, he had never found himself so lost. He stood now at the foot of two great pillars. They reached far into the sky, and Athos could just see the very tops of them were pointed like the great pyramids of the north. Their points appeared to send a sharp pain into his stomach, for they made him think of the promise he'd once made to Alexander, that one day they would travel to Cairo and see them for themselves. We'll climb to the very top of one, brother, the tallest, and from there who knows what wonders we'll see. We might see all the way back to our homeland, maybe catch a star. Perhaps we'll even meet the gods themselves. You look lost, brother. A hand clamped firmly on Athos's shoulder. It did not feel hostile, but still Athos shrugged it away and took a step back. Upon seeing the face of its owner, he nearly dropped to the scorching hot floor. He was taller, yes, and his skin was darker, but he had the same look in his eye, a familiarity so striking it was haunting. Are you all right? the stranger asked. Can I help you? At first, Athos could form no words. It seemed the sands of the western desert had all at once crawled like scarabs and buried themselves within his throat. But coming to his senses, he shook his head and turned away from the boy. No, I'm fine. He had taken only one step when the boy spoke to him once more. You're not Egyptian. Athos turned to him. What of it? You think I don't belong in your city? The boy raised his hands in front of him, even smiled a little. No, not at all, my brother. We have no problems with the Greeks here. Perhaps the boy meant no harm, but Athos was nevertheless keen to move away from him. Any further inner analysis of his voice would likely lead him to conclude that there were far too many things about him that reminded him of the pain that had sent him to this city in the first place. My name is Basil, the boy said. Come, let me lead you to whatever it is you're looking for. 
And how do you know I'm looking for something? Athos said. Because I've been following you. A pang of something Athos did not quite understand flowed through his body then. For what reason had this Egyptian been following him? Perhaps Athos looked lost enough, distracted enough, that Basil could have easily slid a devious hand into his pocket. Or had the boy simply not seen many of Athos's kind in the city? You seem terribly keen on helping me, Athos said. I may be young, Basil said, but I know what despair looks like upon the face of one who could use a stranger's help. I have seen it reflected in the waters of the sea. Basil's face and tone seemed sincere here. Peering behind the boy's eyes and into his mind, Athos thought that he could see scars of some sort. Scars that were created in much the same way as Athos's own. Scars that could never truly heal. I'm looking for one of your gods, Athos said. And as he spoke, he heard how absurd it sounded. But Basil did not laugh or even scoff. There appeared to be no hint of surprise on his face. You are looking for Sobek. Athos nodded, and between them, he knew both boys understood. Searching for a god, Egyptian, Greek or any other, would ordinarily be a hopeless endeavour, unless you happen to find yourself in Crocodilopolis. I'll show you to him, Basil said. Come with me, brother. Athos shook his head. Please, call me Athos. Basil led Athos to a large temple. It was guarded by two sturdy men holding long spears, and they looked to be in no mood for dealing with two young boys who wanted to catch a glimpse of the god that was said to dwell within. So the pair walked along to the quiet side of the temple and helped each other scale the wall. Having passed midday, the sun was now sinking towards the sands and the day had become much cooler, but the stone of the wall they climbed still burned Athos's hands as he pulled himself up. The climb hadn't been too difficult. Athos was accustomed to climbing all manner of things he shouldn't have. He and Alexander had trespassed in many restricted places and climbed much more difficult things. The thrill of going on all the great adventures that they shouldn't have had always been part of the joy of going on them anyway. But it was ultimately what had cost Alexander his life. This way, br- uh, I'm sorry, Athos. Basil moved swiftly but carefully along the top of the wall, on the sides they hadn't climbed, Athos could see more of the temple. Grand pillars held up a mighty building of stone, battered by the sand and the winds that no doubt blew in from time to time. It was decorated with hieroglyphs, most of which were unrecognisable to Athos. His practice of learning the Egyptian symbols had slowed considerably when he had discovered that his brother had shown a much keener interest. Alexander was always so good at translating for him. They rounded a corner on the wall now, and Athos could see a large body of water. It looked to Athos what he thought one of the wealthy bathhouses might look like, but in the centre of this lay a large white object. Gazing down at it, Athos could not at first make any distinct guess as to what it was, but when his eyes adjusted, he was so taken aback by what he saw that he worried for a moment that he might fall from the wall. A crocodile, but very different to any he'd ever seen before. This one was at least twice the size, its jagged teeth sticking out of his mouth like sharp white daggers, and its skin was not green but white enough that the sun reflected from it and hurt Athos's eyes. The light shone upon more than this. The beast was covered in jewels and decorations of all sorts. It looked exactly what Athos thought a king among crocodiles would look like, large, powerful, rich, and as deadly as any god.
Petsuchos is his name, Basil said. Some say he is the son of Sobek. Others are certain that the beast is the very embodiment of him. Either way, I do not believe this crocodile is like any other. The fire ignited inside Athos at the sight of the creature, and yet he could not help but marvel. He had not seen a crocodile since the night the cruel one took his brother, but his memory surely could not have betrayed him to such an extent. This crocodile really was unlike any other, but powerful though indeed it looked, Athos had come here for one reason. Blood for blood. Life for death. He dropped a leg down to the other side of the wall and moved to lower himself down. Athos, no! Basil whispered. He tugged at Athos's sleeve and indicated towards the crocodile. To its side was a priest. He sauntered towards the beast with what looked to be a large piece of raw meat. When he came to the very side of Petsuchos, he held the meat in front of its face. Slowly, the crocodile opened its massive jaws and the priest placed it inside its mouth. Before stepping away, the priest even petted a hand on the crocodile's head. How can he touch the crocodile? Athos asked, astonished. Never in life have I seen such a thing. He does not attack them, Basil said. The priests can bathe in the very waters of Petsuchos's lair, and he would take no heed of them. Well, Athos said, gazing at the beast with eyes it would not move from it. He will heed me. Athos moved swiftly now in hope that the fire within him would not have time to diminish. On the side of the wall leading down to the crocodile, a large palm tree grew close and was of good aid to Athos in his climb downwards. By the time he reached the bottom, he was short of breath, but he urged himself onwards. Ahead of him now, the great crocodile stood watching him but making no move. He stepped forwards and reached into his belt before pulling out the large knife he had carried all the way from Memphis. Blood for blood, life for death. Athos, stop! Basil grabbed at Athos's arm, but he shrugged it away and continued his walk towards the crocodile. Stopping a mere ten or so feet away from it, he raised the knife in front of him so that the wretched beast could see it. Petsuchos! Athos cried. My brother was killed by one of your kind. He was brave and precarious and kind. And though I failed him, I ask you now to put it right. Give him back to me, or I will repay the blood I lost with yours. Give me life back for the death your God caused, or I shall give you death for the life that was cut short. The beast made no move. It simply watched Athos with a wide grin spread across its gigantic jaws. It knows, Athos thought. It knows what happened to Alexander, and it's glad. Let's see how glad the creature is when it feels my cold steel. He noticed now that the sun had partly disappeared behind the horizon. It glowed red and bled across the sky, painting the scene around him scarlet. He raised the knife overhead. A few shots should do it. Crocodiles had tough skin, Athos had heard, and this one probably had the toughest, but it would not withstand his wrath. He gripped the hilt of the knife tightly, drew in a deep breath. Asos, no! Basil, as swiftly as a cat pursuing a mouse, jumped in between him and the crocodile. Basil! Athos shouted. Get out of the way! I came here to do this and you will not stop me! But Basil's eyes were determined. More than this, they held a sadness within them that might stop any boy in his tracks. A deep, understanding grief, known only to someone who has lived the same kind. 
You lost your brother, Basil said. I'm truly sorry, but it is not the fault of this crocodile. He is Sobek, Athos cried. Or his son. Either way, he is part of the pain that has come to me and my family. The crocodile god has been taunting me in my dreams, gloating about what his kind did to my brother. He will pay blood for blood. Athos kept the blade raised above his shoulder, but still Basil did not move. His eyes lost none of their sadness nor their sympathy. The red tint of the sky now washed over his face and the crocodile's white skin. I lost a brother too, Basil said, and suddenly Athos felt colder. At sea, our father took us fishing. A great wave came seemingly from nowhere. He was knocked off the boat and... and... we couldn't reach him. Basil's eyes fell downwards. The scarlet sky around them darkened. The fire within Athos declined. Now Basil looked more like Alexander than ever. Athos's grip on the knife loosened as he lowered it to his waist. I know you feel you must blame someone other than yourself, Basil said. For a long time I blamed your god of the waters, Poseidon. It was easier than accepting that I could have held on to my brother. I could have held on to Babu. But I failed him. Basil, Athos said. I... He was interrupted by a snap. From behind Basil, the massive jaws of Petsuchos opened and then closed faster than the winds of a wild desert storm. No! Athos cried. Alexander! Basil did not cry out. His face showed no more pain than as though the beast had simply trod on his foot instead of clamping its vicious jaws around him. And Athos saw why. Somehow, the crocodile had failed to pierce anything other than Basil's belt. But soon it would snap again, and this time Basil would not be so lucky. And Athos saw with both alarm and distress that Pesuchos held on to the boy with a single tooth. No, no, not again, I will not allow it. No, Athos cried, you leave my friend alone. He raised the knife far above his head and brought it down with all his force upon the crocodile's head. It did nothing but make the beast snarl. Then, realising he had a better target, he stabbed downwards towards the crocodile's mouth, where that horrid single tooth held on to Basil's belt. He could cut it loose, and then they would have to run. The knife came down, and Basil fell forwards. For reasons unbeknownst to Athos, Petsuchos turned and fled into the water. Come, Basil panted, let's get out of here. As the boys scrambled down the other side of the wall, the redness of the sky melted out into the black of night, and the blue moon lit their path to safety. Where will you go now? Basil asked the next morning. Back to Memphis, Athos said. My mother will be worried. It's a long journey to Memphis, no? Maybe two days' walk. Less if I can hide among another caravan. The sun had barely risen when Basil found Athos making ready to leave. He detected a tone of sadness in his voice. But what else had the boy expected? Athos did not belong in Crocodilopodus. Your brother's name was Alexander? Basil asked. It came as no surprise to Athos. As soon as the name had mistakenly escaped his mouth, 
he'd known Basil would have noted it, just like Alexander would have. Yes, Athos said. Perhaps he and Babu watched us last night as we struggled with Petsuchos, after they left the duet. Perhaps from Elysium, Basil said. A silence fell then. The two boys stood side by side and watched the orange sun appear in full from the horizon until it stung their eyes. Here, Basil said, rooting into his pockets before holding his hand out to Athos. Take this. Athos picked it up and marvelled. The crocodile's tooth? Something to remember me by. Athos might have asked him how in the wide world he had had any sense to stop and pick the thing up. Instead, he clutched onto the tooth carefully and managed a smile for Basil. When he got home, he would find a way to thread some string around it so he could wear it around his neck. He would never take it off. I must go now, Athos said. Thank you for showing me the way. The way of mercy. And of moving onwards. I'll look for you should I ever find myself in the Crocodile City again. Basil took Athos's hand and shook it warmly. And thank you for saving my life, Athos. Please, Athos said. Call me brother. Thank you for listening to the Finding North podcast. At the time of recording, the podcast is close to 5,000 plays across the world. I can't express my gratitude to you, the listener, for sticking with this podcast since I started it in 2020. The podcast will now take a break while I concentrate on writing a novel that I hope to query to publishers in 2023. Look out for season three next summer and any special one-off episodes before then. Thank you once again for listening to the Finding North podcast. Please follow the podcast on your preferred platform and head over to chrisamorris.com for all the latest.